I'm Michaela Faulkner, Associate Editor of Strip-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast series, supported by Yetter Farm Equipment. I encourage you to subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribing allows you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. Thanks to Yetter Farm Equipment for supporting this podcast series. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Whether you're a strip-till veteran or just thinking about trying it out, there's always something to be learned from your fellow farmers. In November, the South Fork Watershed Alliance, which works with farmers around the Iowa River's South Fork in central Iowa, invited three local farmers to share their experiences with strip-till. In this episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast, you'll meet Iowa farmers Landon Brown, Chris Bloom, and Glenn Hodnafield. Landon and Chris are just a few years into strip tilling, while Glenn's been doing it for 25 years. Let's listen in as they discuss their successes and challenges, the equipment they're running, their planting and fertilizing techniques, and much more. My name is Landon Brown. I took a uh, full-time job out of college working for my uncle. I was hired under the precedence of bringing on strip-till to the farm, and so that's how I got started with it. I also farm on the side, so spending all night in the tractor wasn't that fun. So my operation has shifted to 100% no-till now, so I can work two jobs. Strip-till, we're running uh, mainly liquid nitrogen in the spring, running in the strip. Uh, also running our sulfur source through that uh, planting. We've got Peggy with a uh, Gandy box on it that we apply rye with. Also using a twin row drill so we can set up for a relay crop. And then that's interseed down there. We're also using that twin row drill to interseed with as well. And then setting up for twin row rye to plant corn and to, to hopefully alleviate some of the uh, allelopathic effect. Uh, Chris Bloom from Alden, southwest of Alden. Uh, I'm new to the strip-till world. Uh, this will be my second year going into 2022. I uh, wanted to get to a little bit more of a less labor-intensive farming practice and help improve my uh, fertility um, and make myself more efficient. I just completed my first year in strip-till, no-till. Glenn Hodnafield from Radcliffe, and uh, this fall is my 25th year that I've been strip-tilling. I started with it and stuck with it, and I've seen a lot of the benefits from it. Uh, there's some questions um, with corn on corn, and, you know, sometimes you have that uh, carbon tie-up in the system, but I really think that the strip-till system works the best corn on corn. So um, that's just one of my experiences, but I also no-till soybeans, um, been no-tilling since 91, but uh, started strip-tilling in the fall of 98, I think. I don't know what your organic matters are now. 
I know my organic matter has increased, but I know that we're in that four to five percent. And I think that is, you talk about water holding capacity. I think that is a big deal. I don't know how many inches of water you get per percent point of increase in organic matter, but I think that's really where a lot of the benefit comes from when your crops are under stress, is having that extra moisture in that soil when we hit those dry spots in the, during the season. Uh, I think that really helps the crop withstand the tough times. I could tell that this year, obviously. Across the fence from me was a full tillage and their crop showed stress and mine did not. Now it could be difference in varieties, I mean there's a lot of things, but I really think that organic matter was one of the big benefits this year. Have you used cover crops? I have not used cover crop. It's something that we are trying to figure out how to incorporate into the system. I'm a one-man operation. I don't have help except my wife, which I couldn't do this without her. <laughs> we're still trying to figure out. Not that I'm against it. I'm, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. And places where I could use the cover crop the most is rented ground. And that makes a difference. The bottom line, you have to show the bottom line over time on, on a situation like that. What's your herbicide programs? Um, her, herbicide programs, um, for me, um, I've used uh, pre-emerge. Uh, I do an early burn down basically on corn. I go in with 2,4-D early with residual and then I'll come back with a post. So uh, it's a two application process but um, I've been doing 2,4-D and Roundup. Now I hear Roundup's even hard to get this year so that might be just 2,4-D along with a pre and then on soybeans I've been doing the same type of thing, an early burn down. And a lot of times on the soybeans, I've used a very early burn down, probably before corn planting, because a lot of the pre's take more moisture to activate on the pre's. And that worked really well this year. But then I also come back with a post. What was your experience for the first year of your experience? Uh, first year experiences were good. I was very happy with how the system performed and uh, the reduced amount of labor and time in the tractor seat. Uh, yields, kind of like everybody, very surprised at how well things yielded. There are some spots that were uh, disappointing, but they were not train wrecks like we had all expected them to be this year. No-till soybeans were tremendous. Very happy with that. Now, Chris, after one year, what tweaks would you make in your system? Uh, so last year in, in 2020, I had a lot of corn acres. And so most of my corn acres this year were all corn on corn. And that was a big challenge to try to manage the residue, especially have, never having done strip till before. So I learned a lot. I couldn't do strips in the fall last year because of residue plugging. And so I moved into a, a spring strip program kind of unexpectedly and it worked better. Um, I learned that maybe I need to run a BT machine over the corn stalks. Um, before I do strip tip, well, I did. <laughs> and it worked better for me anyway. Um, but I think one thing I'd like to change um, going forward is to add more P and K type of um, 
operations into my strips. Right now, I'm just up with an hydrus in the strips, but I'd like to add some either dry fertilizer. Questions for Landon. When do you apply with your handy unit and when do you use the twin row drill? What, what scenarios, what strategies do you use for both of those? So on the Hagee, we're running uh, usually at leaf drop when we're running in beans anyway. That way, hopefully, the goal is leaf drop or rainfall, knock those leaves off, get our rye growing. Uh, corn, we're running uh, Labor Day time frame. Uh, with my twin row drill, it's always after harvest unless we intercede in uh, V4 corn, V3 corn. Usually after harvest, basically as soon as I can get in. I mean, I'll jump out of the combine and jump into the drill. From what I've seen, the sooner I can get it in, the better off I am. This year we've had great growth. Obviously that changes with the year and weather, but uh, that's usually what I'm doing. And, and that way I'm set up for relay or just planting corn into it. It gives me a lot of options going into the winter. All three of you guys, I want to know your P and K, how, how you putting it on you? Injecting it, are you spreading it on top or whatever you're doing? Try spread it on top. Try spread it on top. Yeah, broadcast spread over the top. Uh, broadcast mainly, we're looking to go to possibly a liquid in the strip system. Still tweaking on that, but hopefully in the future. Yeah, my P and K, I banned in the fall, I'll dry. Um, I don't know if you saw my unit there, but yeah, I have a sulfur unit that I pull along with uh, anhydrous and dry. I'm putting the anhydrous down about seven inches or so, and then the P and K uh, goes through the same knife with a different tube, and that's about four to five inches. So I'm putting all the nutrients under the plant and then plant on top of that in the spring. and. Uh, I've seen so many benefits. Now this this year, I don't know whether I should have done it, but it worked out. Um, I had a number that, uh, a variety, that they wanted higher populations. They said, push the population. So I said, okay, I'll put, try it. I pushed it to 36.5. And we took stand counts and they were 36.5 on stand counts. And the yield turned out tremendous by the way, but it was a risk that I took. But I'm also familiar with the strip till and I know what kind of stands I have. I also know my planter does a very good job on spacing. It's taken time to get there, but I think that was a key this year, especially on that one variety. That was the best yielding variety I had. While we're on the topic of dry fertilizer, can you take us through the logistics of dry, please? Yeah, for the first uh, several years that I did this, um, and the co-ops have been very good working with me, um, but they a lot of times had an extra tender truck that they would either park at the end of the field and then they'd supply it and I'd just move it from field to field, and that worked well. Then the co-ops decided that they needed their tender trucks. So um, I found a used tender truck, and if you know the fertilizer business, they're either new or they're really used. <laughs> There's nothing that is called good used in fertilizer equipment. But um, I got one that's been reliable. It's not a pretty looking thing, but I've never had it fail me. <laughs> so um, I go to the co-op, 
and they load me, they mix up the blend, and then I can just haul it to my field. Um, you can also shop around. There are co-ops that are willing to tender your tender. So don't let that scare you too much, but that's how I've handled the dry. And then I, I feel like it's better to use the dry in the fall than the liquid. On the same topic, have you had any trouble handling dry fertilizer in the fall? I know the millennial farmer was having a heck of a time oh, yeah. running all night in humid conditions with his dry fertilizer. I can't say that the weather has been an issue with the dry. I do know that you don't like humid conditions, but as long as you, for myself, as long as I've used enough air on the blower and on the delivery system, I haven't had an issue. Um, when you start losing fan speed, that's when you have an issue. <laughs> and it can be a big issue when it's all said and done. It's no fun unplugging lines. You guys move your strips year after year? Do you try to put the corn row right over the bean row? Why and why not? So going into year two, um, I will, or I made my strips right on top of the bean rows. But then when I plant soybeans, I shift over 15 inches. Uh, usually for us, a lot of it's corn on corn, strip till. So usually we're shifting over 15 inches just because we can't handle that much residue. On the beans, usually we're doing like Chris, right on top of the bean row. When we're no-tilling beans, four to five inches right off the corn row. Uh, we think it makes the beans a little bit stronger and they can use those same root channels that the corn has used. For uh, corn ground following beans, I do 15 inch row beans, no-till. So um, I don't have the old uh, bean row to drive by. In fact, I plant beans at an angle and then I harvest straight. So I, but on corn on corn, I move over about six to seven inches. And the reason that I do that, I get off the old corn row, but I'm also not right in the center tire where I've already traveled previous trips. And I, I think just moving over a little bit, and if I do keep doing corn on corn, I'll do up to three years corn on corn. I'll just move it like from one side to the other side. And, and that's what I do corn on corn. Now, when I go back into a bean field that's had corn in, I can still pick out the corn rows. And if my GPS is working, it'll be right on top of the old corn rows. And that's from two years ago. And I just follow it now. My reasoning, quite possibly if there's any extra fertilizer from two years ago that's possibly in that band, which maybe not, but if there is, it's there. Just my thought process on that. Yeah, Are you it, not doing today that you were doing 20 years ago, Glenn? <laughs> I, I really think um, the thing that it takes is patience. I think 20 years ago, I think I was probably pushing things a little bit too much. Now, as your soil structure improves over time, that helps, that really does help. But I think having patience is one of the keys that, that's kind of hard when you start. Um, 
You know, especially if you're doing making strips in the spring when it's wet, that's a bad deal. That, that does not always turn out well. You hope it keeps raining. <laughs> but I think uh, when it comes to planting or even making strips in the fall, just have patience. And if you don't get it in the fall, you'll have weather in the spring. Have you adapted to earlier planting conditions? Uh, yeah, I would say so. It's it's very nice planning into it. I just like the aspect of we're pushing some workload off. What we'd normally be spending the first five days in the spring doing, working ground, whatever, we can spend planting. And the stands we get with strip till is pretty incredible. Um, I would agree. I liked the aspect of that too, pushing off the workload into the fall as much as possible. I got all my strips made this fall, so the next spring it's hook up to the planter and go. I've uh, taken soil temperatures in the spring and uh, from the strip to the um, part that isn't tilled at all, um, it's an average of four to five degrees difference in temperature. And it's also drier, you know, with the oxygen in there. Um, it's a beautiful seed bed to plant into. And you don't have to be totally perfect. I mean, you like to be on that center row, but you don't have to be perfect. If you're close and you're mixing dry soil in your seed trench, um, yeah, you like to be in the center, but don't sweat it if, it, if your GPS is off, too, you know, off an inch. Remember years ago, in the, you work in uh, the soil for a garden in the fall, you know, you'd till it up, and in the spring, what was that like for the garden? It was perfect. Well, why don't you plant into that? You know, you got this perfect seed bed. Plant into it. Don't mess it up by working. <laughs>
Um, we've started running some stompers a little bit. That way we're knocking right down in the row. That's kind of what we're shooting for. I've uh, put stock stompers on my corn head. And one of the benefits I see, uh, one of them is that you can tell what direction you combine with your stock stompers. That works when you come back when you no-till beans because when you spray, you've got a direct line that you can follow with a sprayer. Never thought of that. With the stock stompers, you can tell exactly where you can drive. And the other benefit that I saw with stock stompers, um, with more residue on the ground, I used to have a lot more issues of tires, um, stubble, stubble damage in the tires. Now, with the stock stompers, it's reduced it 90%. I can't say it's eliminated it, but the stock stompers have made a tremendous difference in this flat tire syndrome that I've had with uh, equipment. So that's, that's worked really well for me. And all it has to do is break that stock up. It doesn't have to crush it, but just if you break it, come spring, it'll be brittle. And it just works. Next question. Auto steer just on the tractor versus auto steer on the tractor and the strip to bar. We're going to start with the idealer dealer for the year. <laughs> <laughs> Ideally, implement guidance would be the, the casting out. I mean, that would be 100% the, the best case scenario. Um, we're pretty flat square. I've got a couple fields with some contours and terraces, but. Um, I felt like once you kind of get in the strip with your planter, it, it helps, it stays in the strip. It doesn't vary too much. It, it kind of falls in line there and it works pretty well. And, you know, if you have a curve or a contour or something, you manually take over and try to steer out around it and drag over your strips and stuff. But um, RTK is a must, in my opinion. Um, yeah, RTK is pretty awesome. Um, yeah, but like Chris said, once you get the planter in the strip, it'll just ride there all day. Uh, in fact, one time I tried it, veered the tractor over, I was driving on the strips and the planter was just pulling to the side but stayed in the strips because that it's so mellow. Um, but yeah, we're running RTK mounted strip till unit, so that helps with draft. Yeah, I, I found that uh, years ago when I started with uh, strip till, I was using markers on my strip till machine. And I found out then in the spring when you come back with the planters, see, it was all manual. Can you go back to those days when it was all manual dry? Wow. But the planter tended to follow the strip. It, it liked being in there. And uh, as far as uh, GPS, um, I use a correction signal. I don't use RTK. Um, I had issues with RTK. Now maybe that Chris and I can talk. <laughs> but my egg leader works very well. What do you guys find when you're trying to do precision tillage right behind the tractor tire or right behind the track tractors? Do you find that the row units that run your tracks behave differently, plug more? Like, do you find that you have to give special attention to those row units, or do you find that the whole bar is pretty uniform with how the row units behave? Wheeled tractors only, I guess. Uh, I've never seen an issue with that. Um, could let Lauren Steinlogge up here. He'll tell me tracks all day. 
He's not on the program tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I haven't seen a huge issue either with that, Jacob. Um, if you find a, a hard combine track or something, you might bring up some more chunks with your strips. But um, you, you know, your strip tail rodents are running between the tires, so you're not really in the tire track itself. But no, I haven't seen much yet, I guess. No, I just haven't seen much of an issue with that. I, I think there's, there's more of an issue with how the planters are configured and how they carry the weight more than the strip till bar. Um, strip till, if, if I'm able to do it, I do it in the fall, and that's a lot more forgiving. Clint, how do you handle a wet harvest? There's two things that I think of with handling uh, a wet harvest. And it goes back to patience is one, which is really hard. Um, when you get fall, I think patience is one, maybe just a day or two. It doesn't have to be, oh, I can't go out there for a week. But maybe it, if you see your neighbors going, maybe just wait a day or two. So I, I think that's part of it. I have not really um, compacted endros or something like that. Occasionally, I will rip something if I, you know, what it's like in the fall and you got trucks and everything. I might occasionally go in and rip, but generally I don't. And it's amazing what it looks like in the spring, and I'm able to go in there and still be able to, more than likely it's after corn, so I know till soybeans. It's amazing how the planter can handle it and how the beans, after they get going with their root system and stuff, it really does help. One thing I've learned is fence in your grain carts. Don't start plowing in a field near the semis and then work away from them. I open up a spot for the semis part and fence in the grain carts and go to the far end of the field. They get one track, so they just grow in one spot and you got one problem rather than letting them go at an angle across the field, if, if it is a wet harvest, rather than tracks everywhere. I think uh, on your wet fall question, your soil structure improves so much with strip-till and no-till. It's incredible. I mean, in the wet falls of 19, we would go out, I mean, you could go out a day after an inch of rain and you wouldn't make a track. So it's, the soil structure helps a lot. What would you say to those eight guys ripping? I saw on my way here. How do you convince them they don't need to do that? I think that's actually a hard one because I think um, changing tradition. Um, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of farmers, that like farming and like the tillage. They enjoy doing it. You know that it is. You know it is kind of fun getting out there and just mindlessly going up and down the field. You know it's kind of cool and stuff. But when I go up and down the field, I do it with a purpose. I'm making my applications with N, P, and K, and my next trip is with a planner. Um, the other thing to convince people is um, how much time and effort and fuel and equipment do you have to rip the ground, to run all your fuel cultivators and you know all, all the equipment that you need for full width tillage. I've got basically one piece. Yeah, it might be a little complicated, but it sure, once you get it set up and running, 
with the auto steer, you can sit there and drive pretty good, you know. Um, so my investment is in one piece of equipment. And how many times do you have the field cultivators, the, you know, all, all the other stuff. And I, I think changing the mentality is really where it needs to go and being able to convince people that it's worthwhile. There are so many benefits. Um, soil structure. One of the biggest benefits was uh, water filtration down. That was one of the first things I saw was that water holding capacity of the soil that you're able to conserve that water but that that water when you do get it goes down. It doesn't run off. I share a pond with a neighbor who does full wilt tillage. We got a fence line between us. And you can tell un until his pond overwhelms my half, you can tell that mine drains. And water filtration down was one of the first big benefits that I saw when I started strip tilling 25 years ago. Uh, I think, how does this, a third less seat time sound? I mean, and half the fuel and half the horsepower. I mean, I can pull a pretty big strip till bar with 300 horse. I mean, it's uh, a lot of savings when you start adding it all up. And time's a big one. I'd rather spend time with my family and doing other stuff like that. I don't want to sit in a tractor all fall. I convinced myself in the fall of 2018 to do something different when it was early December and it was muddy <laughs> and it was six degrees outside and I was sitting out there in the river wondering what in the world am I doing out here when it's this cold and I'm pulling up chunks of dirt that's frozen <laughs> six inches thick and then I decide how am I going to handle that next spring, these huge chunks. And I was burning, you know, 16 gallons of fuel an hour. And then I had to go back and I had to put in hydrous on that field. That's not 10 gallons an hour. And then fuel cultivating or 12 gallons. I mean, just the fuel alone in the time, like, like Lance said, the seed time is drastically reduced. And that's when I decided I need to start investigating something different. Is fall of 2018 when we were wet, muddy, and frozen. Thanks to Glenn, Chris, and Landon for sharing their strip-till strategies with us and to the South Fork Watershed Alliance for putting the panel together. Let me know what you thought about this episode by emailing me at mpogner at lessetermedia.com or calling me at 262-777-2441. If you're looking for more podcasts about strip-till, visit striptillfarmer.com slash podcasts or check out our episode library wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, many thanks to Yetter Farm Equipment for helping to make this Strip-Till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Bogner. Thanks for listening.